Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. The first time we've been on the air in a little over a month, so... Glad to have you back on the program. This is episode 52, and it's been a long time coming. I'm back in the saddle again. I've been out of the chair here for a little while, working on my book on Alexander Hamilton, and I'll say something about that. It's going to be so awesome. You're going to want to pick up more than one copy. In fact, you want to pick up five copies and give them to your friends. So Hamilton has occupied my time, but I'm out of the way with Hamilton and John Marshall and Joseph Story and Hugo Black. They're done. And I'm back here to talk to you on this podcast. I'm really happy to be back and excited to get back into podcasting with you. I know there's been a lot of people asking me on Twitter and Facebook and email, hey, when are you coming back? Well, here I am. I'm back on the program. So I hope you tune in and listen to the Brian McClanahan Show from here on out. I'm going to try uh, the next couple of weeks to do one episode. And then starting in January, I'll be back to my two-day-a-week schedule plus podcasting at the Abbeville Institute as well, one day a week. So you'll be getting me three times a week if you want to listen to the Abbeville Institute podcast, if you just want to listen to this one, two times a week. Of course, the Abbeville Institute podcast is a uh, podcast dedicated to the South. So uh, if you want to check that one out, uh, please feel free. But here we are, and I'm going to provide you with... um, an analysis of the 2016 election. So when I when I last spoke to you on the on the last episode of the Brian McClanahan show, I was giving you my election primer and what I thought you should do. And um, unfortunately, because of Alexander Hamilton, I was not able to podcast after the election. So since then, a lot of things have happened. So we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And I'm going to compare this 2016 election in the aftermath with some other historical examples. And so that's what this show is all about, trying to give you a little historical perspective on some things. And uh, Donald Trump, of course, won the election. And as I mentioned in the primer podcast, I thought this was highly possible. Um, I did think that uh, if certain people voted certain ways in certain states, if you were in a swing state, so-called swing state, you should get out and vote for Trump. Uh, If you were in a safe state, then you should cast a vote that reflected your views. Um, I was a little off on the couple of the states. I, I didn't, I didn't think that um, Pennsylvania was going to be in play as it was, though I was a little closer. Uh, and of course, Michigan. But I was right on with Wisconsin, and uh, I thought that um, Trump could just win with that particular state. But um, it's an amazing election. There's no doubt about it. And the the outcome, I thought, certainly could happen. I know a lot of people were predicting Hillary Clinton in a runaway. Um, I did think that uh, that Trump could win the election, and he ended up winning the election. Uh, so, of course, now the pressure's on to try to get people in the Electoral College to vote one particular way or try to persuade the Electoral College voters not to vote for Trump. And there's some 
discussion out there, particularly among left-wing professors, that this could be possible, that some of these uh, some of these electors could be swayed to vote against Trump. And, of course, as we've talked about on, I did a podcast, the Tom Wood Show, where Kevin Goodsman and I talked about the, the Electoral College. There's really nothing out there to stop these people from voting any way they want. Um, I, I favor some Electoral College reform, but at the even now, um, you know, as as uh, Kevin relayed in that podcast, he's not so certain if these people voted against Trump that the state could really do anything about it. Um, so that's never been challenged in court. But um, I do think that Trump's going to win the Electoral College. Uh, I think that this is all, you know, a bunch of smoke and nothing's going to happen from that. But so Trump's going to be the 45th president of the United States. And a lot of people are talking about, well, where can you compare this election? So for, for months, you know, Donald Trump has been called Andrew Jackson. And, of course, I read a little piece on that. Is Trump Andrew Jackson or Aaron Burr? Uh, and uh, is there some similarity to Trump and Andrew Jackson, at least the campaign? I, I definitely think there is in some ways. You know, Andrew Jackson portrayed himself as this political outsider coming into Washington, D.C. and, and uh, changing the direction of that particular city. Uh, and there was a, uh, certainly a lot of support for Jackson among the old Republican group uh, who were uh, staunch constitutionalists. Uh, and there was a lot of support for Jackson among uh, people who favored a much more limited central government. Now, what we got out of Andrew Jackson was not that. Uh, in fact, there's a reason why Andrew Jackson was called King Andrew, particularly by people in South Carolina who viewed him as an oppressive dictator or a monarchist uh, because Jackson's moves during his administration were not necessarily in line all the time with limited government. And if you want to know more about that, you can read my nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her. So uh, Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump do share some things in common in that particular way. I think that uh, this, this election is more in line with actually a couple of more recent elections. And, and I talked about the 1896 election as well. You know, this could, could Donald Trump uh, be uh, somewhat like the 1896 election where you had uh, William McKinley win the presidency? Uh, but I think that uh, this particular election and the way things actually worked out is kind of a combination of the 1976 and 1980 election. And you might be thinking, well, how in the heck is this a, how is this 1976? Jimmy Carter won that election. Well, let me, let me explain. So for those of you that are younger and and don't remember the 1976 election, um, and it's really not discussed that often when you take uh, college level courses or uh, even your high school history courses, because it's kind of contemporary history. and, And a lot of times, I know when I was in school, we stopped with World War II. Um, now, when I was in school, the 1976 election wasn't that long before uh, I was in high school. So it was still you know, very much recent history, and, and oftentimes we only got up to about World War II, and that was that. Uh, even in college, um, our history courses never really made it past about the 1950s. Uh, I did take a particular course, uh, a political science course, where the, the professor made it a point to go over uh, the Vietnam era. And uh, that was actually a very interesting, uh, interesting course. But I always try to make it a point in my courses to get all the way up to the present day in some way or another. And so I do cover the 1976 election. So let's talk about how this 
2016 election mirrors that 1976 election in certain ways. First of all, you had Gerald Ford as president going into the 1976 election. Now, he um, was elevated to the vice presidency through the uh, mechanisms of the 25th Amendment after Spiro Agnew resigned. Uh, Agnew, of course, was um, indicted for corruption and and charged, and so there was a vacancy in the vice presidency, and, and Ford was elevated to that position by the Congress. And so when Richard Nixon resigned in, in 1974, um, the, uh, the office went to Gerald Ford. In fact, there's an interesting side note to that. Gerald Ford, for a time, didn't live in the executive mansion. He lived in a little two-story brick house in northern Virginia, that was the executive mansion while he was president before he got to move to the White House. And so that, that house actually was on the market not long ago, and, and the people that were selling it were marketing that way. You know, here you can live in the executive mansion. Uh, this was the executive mansion in 1974. Uh, so Ford is now the incumbent, and the scandals that had swirled around the Nixon administration and all the corruption that was in Washington, D.C., People were tired of Washington, D.C. being the cesspool of scandal in 1976. And what is different? I mean, you, you had this same idea back during Reconstruction. This is why I say, you know, Reconstruction really is current events. Uh, but nothing really has changed since the 1880s, the 1870s. I mean, people were talking about corruption and scandal back at that time. You know, for example, James Garfield in 1880, was going to the White House to clean up corruption. Uh, Grover Cleveland uh, was elected basically on an, on the idea that uh, in 1884 that he was going to go in and clean up corruption. Uh, so, I mean, what has changed? We, we, the problem here is, not <laughs> is that we believe that the president is somehow going to clean up corruption. That's the problem. Uh, and that's never going to happen. But we put all our faith in this idea that somehow one man is going to ride into Washington, D.C. on a white horse and is going to save the day. Uh, and so we're always looking for that anti-corruption candidate. We're always going to be disappointed. The only way to handle this problem of you know, cleaning up corruption would be, would be decentralization. Again, that's the think locally, act locally position that I've, I've emphasized over and over again on this podcast. But still, we have this idea that we need to go in and clean up corruption. So... Uh, there was actually a challenge to Gerald Ford in the 1976 Republican primary by Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was considered to be an outsider. He had been governor of California, uh, but he was very popular, uh, you know, very much, uh, much more of a purist than Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was kind of this, uh, you know, middle-of-the-road, establishment-type Republican. And um, his, his policies, that, the policies that he advocated during his time in Congress and also as, uh, as president— weren't really in line with those who favored a much more limited central government. Now, you can make a case that uh, the people that backed Reagan, that ultimately, when, when Reagan won, then ultimately had the reins of the White House, didn't really favor that much of, of limited government either. I mean, I think Reagan gets a lot of credit for things he, he shouldn't get credit for. But uh, nevertheless, Reagan runs against Gerald Ford in 1976 and almost pulls off the upset. Now, how is this compared to 2016? Well, you've got the incumbent party, now not the incumbent president, but the incumbent party with a shoe-in candidate in Hillary Clinton, and you've got this quote-unquote outsider in Bernie Sanders that's able to energize a large portion of the base of the Democrat Party, and that base 
almost succeeded if it wasn't for you know cronyism in the Democratic Party, Sanders might have gotten the nomination. And so there's a lot of parallels between Ronald Reagan running against Gerald Ford in 1976 in the primary season and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in 2016. The only difference is that one is the Republicans and the other is the Democrats. And so the Democrats nominate Jimmy Carter in 1976. Again, here's an outsider. So what you saw in, in 1976 was this real outsider push. Let's get an outsider in the, in the executive mansion that can go in there and do some things and, and, and change the culture in Washington, D.C. and end all this corruption. So Jimmy Carter is, uh, he was a real outsider. I mean, here's a guy from Plains, Georgia, little town in Georgia. Uh, by the way, Jimmy Carter wrote a very good book uh, several years back, a little over a decade ago, entitled An Hour Before Daylight. And it's a little book that looks at uh, what life was like growing up in Plains, Georgia during the Great Depression on a farm. And, you know, Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. And he talked about how his dad hated the New Deal because he had to go out and slaughter pigs and plow under crops. And uh, this was just a real burden on the farms in, uh, in Georgia and around the South that all the uh, reforms from the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, were really ruining uh, small farmers across the South. And so, you know, Jimmy Carter wrote this really interesting book. And, uh, you know, some of it is is typical liberal claptrap. I mean, it's, it's it's not, some of it's not good. But to get a look at, you know, rural, the rural South in the 1930s, uh, it, it's just a fascinating read. And so, you know, I know a lot of people don't like Jimmy Carter. I'm going to actually talk him up here in a second. Um, but uh, he he was a real outsider candidate. Um, his brother, Billy Carter, I mean, this guy is absolutely hilarious. Uh, Billy Carter was this uh, larger-than-life kind of figure, and uh, he was, in some ways, people thought he was a detriment to the Carter campaign. Uh, but, you know, people really attached to, to Billy Carter and, and things that he said. In fact, uh, he had a quote where he said, I always said what I thought, and I didn't hold anything back. Now, who does that sound like in 2016? This is exactly what people wanted Donald Trump to do. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't hold it back. Don't be politically correct. And out of all the people uh, in this 1976 campaign, that was, that was Billy Carter. Uh, perhaps you could say the same thing about Ronald Reagan, but you know Billy Carter, where he said, "You know, I'm a real Southern boy. I got a red neck, white socks, and blue ribbon beer." He had his own be- Billy beer. He sits in front of this little gas station, telling stories about uh, the South and and uh, life. So people really related to this Billy Carter guy. And Jimmy Carter, of course, was trying to to run away from this, but he also had this very interesting family outside of Billy Carter, as Billy. Remarked he had one sister who rode Harley Davidson motorcycles, another was a holy roller. Uh, and so you've got this, uh, this very interesting, very, uh, and some of the family, very strong faith based family. And Jimmy Carter was a very decent man, still is a decent man. Um, and when he becomes president, he's elected in 1976 in a very close election. Again, 1976 is, is in some ways very similar to 2016. Uh, now, Carter did win both the popular vote and the Electoral College, but gosh, it was close in 1976. Razor-thin majority. And I think that, you know, when you look at 2016, Trump is going to end up losing the popular vote, but wins in a razor-thin majority in the Electoral College. 
And so you still had very much a divided America in 1976. Now, the things that were dividing America then are not necessarily the things that are dividing America now. Uh, you know, 1976, Americans were generally much more in line on social issues than they are today. I think that the modern left agenda when it comes to cultural Marxism is much worse in 2016 than it was in 1976. But that said, uh, you did have this, uh, this, this very split electoral uh, map in 1976. So Carter comes into office, and Jimmy Carter, again, he's this outsider guy. Uh, one thing about Jimmy Carter that a lot of people don't realize, you know, back in, in 1992 when uh, Bill Clinton was running for president the first time and ended up winning, he was very famous for the phrase, you know, I feel your, I feel your pain. And uh, I want you to know everybody's out there hurting, and I, I feel your pain. And people thought that that was, that was Bill Clinton's catchphrase, I feel your pain. Well, actually, Jimmy Carter said this in a speech, a crisis of confidence speech, as the economy stunk in the late 1970s. This wasn't all Carter's fault. And I'm going to talk, again, I'm going to talk up Carter just a little bit in a minute. But you had very high inflation during the 1970s. In fact, they called it stagflation. It's supposed to be under the Keynesian model that if you have inflation, you have a robust economy because all this money being pumped into the economy is going to help the economy. But what we saw in the 19, late 1970s was high inflation in a very stagnant economy. So something had to be done about that. And ultimately, Jimmy Carter favored two things that I think uh, he's not given enough credit for. One was deregulation. Jimmy Carter was much more of a deregulation president than... Uh, people know. In fact, all the credit that Ronald Reagan gets for deregulation in the 1980s really started during the Jimmy Carter administration. Carter recognized that regulation was actually a crony business. And I mean, so people that are uh, today, you know, you have uh, free marketeers who are saying, look, I mean, regulation is crony capitalism. That, that's what you get out of regulation. You're picking winners and losers. And so we've seen a lot of regulation during the Obama administration. And one thing Trump has promised to do is roll back all these regulations. And this is exactly what Jimmy Carter realized had to be done in the late 1970s. So you start seeing this process put forward to deregulate things like the airline industry and the energy sector and uh, the communications industry. You know, AT&T was ultimately broken up. Uh, and so you had deregulation and long-distance services. Uh, and, you know, the, the aftermath of that was uh, cheaper long-distance rates. And, you know, it used to be if you wanted to have an answering machine, you had to rent it from the telephone company. You actually rented your telephones from the telephone company. Now you just go out and you buy your phone uh, and you buy an answering machine if you even want that anymore. I mean, so all the things that we've gotten here in 2016, people just take this stuff for granted – well, if it wasn't for Jimmy Carter out there deregulating or at least pushing this message, uh, we wouldn't have had some of the reforms that took place during the 80s. Same thing with the airline industry. You know, the airline uh, prices of airlines went down. Now, um, we could say that, you know, if you look back in the 70s and uh, air, air travel in the 70s was much more cushy. Uh, you had more room in your seats. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the amenities on your airlines were better than they are today. Now, there's some high-dollar high uh, airlines out there that allow you to do some things that are really nice, but you don't have lounges anymore in airlines. Uh, and you used to have these things. And so uh, when, when deregulation took place, uh, you know, you had um, airline pilots flying, flying fewer miles and fewer hours, so they weren't as fatigued. And so 
Now you get in an airplane and it's cramped and it stinks and it's awful. You don't have any room. The amenities stink. The airlines are rude. Uh, and this is because they charge less, so they want to cram more people in the jets to make sure they make money. Uh, so in some ways, you know, uh, I, I can I'm all for deregulation, but uh, you know the airline industry has not responded the way you would hope from a consumer standpoint and making things better. So Carter was out there deregulating, and I think that's something he's not given credit for. The other is uh, is uh, putting Paul Volcker in at the Federal Reserve. And uh, Volcker, of course, interest rates went sky high in the late 70s because he's trying to rein in this inflation, which was over 14% in the late 1970s. So you had these super high interest rates, and people were going in and socking money away and making 20% on, uh, on their uh, investments. I mean, this was a big deal back in the 70s. Of course, it did save the dollar. A lot of people don't—the dollar was, was going to collapse. Gerald Ford's campaign slogan in 1976 was win, which stood for whip inflation now. So the dollar was on the one that was on the verge of collapsing in the 70s, and Volcker saved the dollar. And I think that you're going to see something, you know, th- this is something that people need to discuss here in 2016. The dollar has actually, you know, the interest rates have gone up just a little bit here, and we're talking about a couple of more rate, hi- rate hikes. So the dollar is going to be saved, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, I know Peter Schiff is very, uh, you know, very pessimistic about this, that they're actually going to have to drop rates. But one thing you're seeing is that, you know, the Trump election has reinvigorated interest in a robust economy. You know, the, we had during Obama's administration eight years, essentially, of stagflation. Uh, this is Jimmy Carter, all o- or at least the early Carter administration, all over again. But Obama never took the proper steps to solve this problem, which was deregulation, uh, you know, getting rid of all these regulations he had and actually trying to have a monetary policy that would rein in some of the inflation that we've had. So, uh, you know, you can look at uh, the, the Jimmy Carter administration, an outsider, but of course, 1980 rolls around, and because the economy is not doing well, and because Jimmy Carter doesn't have a very good reputation, some of that had to do with foreign policy. Uh, you had, for example, the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, you had, uh, you know, brewing troubles with the Soviet Union, and, and Carter was seen on, as soft on Russia. And again, uh, Russia is center stage here in 2016, except this time it's the opposite. People were concerned about Obama and Hillary Clinton and virtually anyone else on the stage in the 2016 Republican primary running us into World War III. So people have somehow gotten this idea that we always need to talk tough with Russia and we need to bomb the tar out of them. Well, this is stupid. Uh, no one, if you look at what Reagan was saying back in the 1980s, he was never saying we got to bomb Russia. He was saying, look, we need to have an open communication with Russia. We need to make sure we have a dialogue with Russia. We need to be tough. We need to we need to trust what they're doing, but we need to verify what they're doing as well. And uh, but not only that, we need to always be at the table with them, at the table all the time. You know, war is a last resort. We're not going to be Chris Christie and say I'm going to bomb the I'm going to bomb the crap out of them if they pass that line that no fly zone. Well, no fly zone means no fly zone, you morons. So we're going to shoot them down. Yeah, Chrissy, that's really smart. Uh, we're going to go out there and start World War III. And I think you saw this with virtually every candidate, but Donald Trump. And so, you know, Ronald Reagan's position on Russia was not we're going to bomb Russia. We're going to have we're going to build up our military again, which we can talk about, you know, whether that's a good idea or not in the way that it works in the military industrial complex. But uh, we're going to have a, a, a position of strength with Russia, but we're going to sit at the table with them and we're going to make sure we're always talking. There's a dialogue there at all times. This is the exact same thing Richard Nixon did. So uh, I think that in that way, you know, Donald Trump 
and Ronald Reagan share a lot in common. So, uh, you know, Trump uh, in 1980, Reagan was still running as an outsider. He still had this very much this outsider image in 1980. And so he wins the election and he comes into office. Now, the one thing I will also say, and this is where my fear with Donald Trump comes in. So a lot of people said, well, you know, Donald Trump's the new Ronald Reagan. Well, I think that the uh, the positive energy that's been created by the Trump election is, is tremendous. I mean, uh, the fact that uh, you have some discussion about the economy growing again and and people looking at, you know, an America first agenda where we're going to talk about, um, you know, saving American jobs and these type of things. I mean, this is great. Uh, you know, we can we can discuss the economic implications of all of that, whether this is the proper economic policy, whether, you know, this type of um, of this America first economic policy is is wise uh, policy. But I think one thing that's happened is that people are excited about America. They really have a positive image about what's going to happen in the next eight years, or at least the next four years, something that you haven't really had uh, in a long time. Uh, so Donald Trump is, is upsetting the apple cart. And looking at his nominees for various cabinet positions, these are none, none of these people, I mean, some of them, I say none, a few of them are, are these insider individuals, but a lot of them are these, are these outsiders, just like Trump. Uh, and, you know, his, his nominee for, for Secretary of State has come under a lot of fire uh, because he's not uh, this um, guy who's going to go out and, and bomb Russia. You know, Rex Tillerson, uh, he wants to work with Russia. I mean, that's great. Um, you know, Trump avoided Mitt Romney and John Bolton. Thank God he avoided John Bolton, which would have been a disaster. But you look at some of the people that he's chosen, and they're kind of an outsider just like Donald Trump. Um, and so I think that's that's a refreshing change for Washington, D.C. You know, Betsy DeVos, uh, who's uh, just, uh, I think, a pretty good nominee for education secretary. I would like to see that department abolished. Same thing with the Department of Energy. It's, it's not necessary. Uh, but um, we, we, we have someone who's very much in line with school choice, for example, and vouchers and homeschooling. So this is great. We want the federal government out of the school. And Donald Trump has said some very positive things about the 10th Amendment, particularly when it comes to education. So that's a good thing. You know, Jeff Sessions, who's going to, I think, be pretty hard uh, as uh, attorney general on uh, illegal immigration. I think that's a very good thing for the future moving forward. So uh, we, he, he's nominated some good people, and they're not the typical neoconservative. And in fact, I wrote a piece for Town Hall right after the election where I said, you know, let's not stop the Trump revolution. Let's let's not have it be 1980 all over again. And what happened in 1980 is that Reagan's elected and then all the neoconservatives come out from the woodwork and they start whispering in Reagan's ear. This is what they do. The, the neoconservatives whisper to power and they want, uh, you know, people to um, uh, whisper in their ear and uh, they, they want to be in that, in that position, you know, kind of like uh, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, where you had uh, the character that whispered in the ear of power there, this, this fork-tongued, uh, you know, devious guy who's in there, uh, you know, corrupting the mind of the king through, through Sodomon. So uh, you, you have this. This is what the neocons do. They whisper to power. And I think that's, uh, that's one thing that Trump has kind of been able to avoid here so far, uh, and I mentioned you know, this is not a good idea. In fact, what happened with Reagan, you know, Mel Bradford was going to be nominated for a very important position, in the National Endowment for the Humanities, Humanities and he was uh, his his candidacy was was revoked because he had written some bad things about Abraham Lincoln. Oh my gosh, you know, the sacred Lincoln, uh, you can't do that. So 
uh, you know, the, the neocons got into power, and of course, Reagan, the Reagan administration gave us George H.W. Bush, which uh, gave us George W. Bush, and by default also gave us Bill Clinton. I mean, so uh, you want to keep the neocons out of the way as much as you can, and I think so far, so far, Trump has been able to do that, and that is a very refreshing thing. So I hope he continues that process. So we don't want it to be 1980 in terms of the neoconservatives getting back into power, uh, but we do want it to be uh, very much this outsider revolution. And so far, I think there's some some positive uh, some positive signs that that's going to take place. So is Donald Trump Andrew Jackson uh, who, yet to be seen? I mean, how how Trump governs, uh, how he uses the power of the executive branch. I'm hoping that uh, you know Trump will will not follow down the path of being uh, the, the the executive who just wields unconstitutional power. Uh, I don't have much hope. I mean, I, I did say in nine presidents that really anyone that goes into the executive office today is going to have powers that uh, the president was never designed to have. So how Trump uses those powers is the key. Um, I, I am encouraged by some of the signs that he has, as I just said, you know, nominating some of the people that he did that aren't necessarily these standard uh, neoconservative uh, candidates for these different positions. And maybe he's going to be much like, uh, you know, Carter in the last years of his administration, where he's deregulation, uh, you know, putting in somebody in the Federal Reserve uh, chair that's uh, that's a pretty good uh, candidate that's going to do some things to help save the economy from itself. You know, we may not have some of the things that Bernanke and, and Greenspan were doing, particularly Ben Bernanke at, there at the end, uh, which were just disastrous monetary policy decisions. So, um, again, I'm, I'm fairly encouraged by some of the things going on with Trump. And if nothing else, his stance with Russia is uh, much more in line with uh, what we need to be thinking about in terms of a, a foreign policy that's not so militaristic and bellicose. So uh, I think that 2016 has some similarities between 1976 and 1980, uh, more so than any other election. All right, so that's it for the Brian McClanahan Show for Episode 52. Again, I'm glad to be back in the chair and glad to have you all listening to the program. Uh, those of you that were out there saying, when am I coming back? Well, here I am. I'm back at it. Again, I'll probably do two more podcasts uh, for the month of December. And then starting in January, I should be back to a two-time-a-week, uh, two-episode-a-week schedule for the Brian McClanahan Show. And um, if you have any suggestions, send them my way. I do get those. Even if I don't respond back to you, um, I do get your suggestions. And I've been taking notes, making a list and checking it twice uh, uh, for, for various podcast uh, ideas. And um, some of those things will come out. Some of them, uh, you know, I can't do them because maybe I don't have the, the expertise in that particular area or uh, maybe it's too narrow of an idea. But um, I do look at them and, and I do appreciate any input you have. This show only exists because you all listen to it. So, um, you know, please uh, keep listening and share it around. And, uh, you know, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, uh, follow my YouTube channel. Um, I will be doing more writing in the future. So now that uh, Alexander Hamilton has stopped ruining my life, he's already ruined America. This is why Hamilton screwed up America. He's been ruining my life for the last few months. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm happy that project's out of the way. But again, you're going to want to buy that book. It's so good. It's so good. You're going to want to buy five. I mean, this is this is a epic takedown of Alexander Hamilton. 
and his constitutional machinations. It's not just about policy. It's about what he was doing to the Constitution. And then all these three judges that followed that really uh, screwed things up as well, Marshall Story and Hugo Black. So you're going to want to get that. That doesn't come out till September, but I'm going to have some really good goodies uh, to entice you to go out and pre-order that book. Some things you're definitely going to want to do to pre-order it and get your hands on it because you're going to get some good stuff from me. Uh, And so that's going to be worth your time as well. And I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon.